and welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Basca, and today I am delighted to welcome Melissa Hazlip, the director, writer, and producer of Mr. Soul, a documentary about Ellis Hazlip and his phenomenal program, Soul, that aired from 1968 to 1973 on public broadcast television and was a seminal voice for the Black arts in media. My podcast, Ride the Omnibus, is parked at the intersection of pop culture and social justice. So awesome. your documentary, of course, plays beautifully right into that, given the legacy of Ellis Hayslip that was so tremendous. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. This is such an exciting time to be having these conversations in the first place. So, <laughs> so yeah. excited that, you know, I think of Mr. Soul... And the Soul series is like the tide that raises all boats. And uh, since we're having so many important conversations about, you know, social justice and critical race theory and all of these issues around how we're going to be better human beings moving forward. Exactly. (laughs) So great to have a story like this that really speaks to all of that. And also is at the same time, just a beautiful affirmation of, of the positivity that we have and, and the possibilities that we have. So it's just really exciting to be sharing the film right now because I, I really see it as being uplifting and also inspiring. And we certainly need more Black joy right now and we Definitely. need more, more positivity and uh, just as a, a way to recognize that we can move forward. I'm all about that right now. Curating Black Joy is a is a huge priority. <laughs> yeah, but it's such a wonderful documentary for that because if you even just take individual clips from within the documentary, anywhere within it, you know, you have immediately a segment devoted to Black excellence that could play on its own and just be a tremendously important piece all on its own. So oh, I- thank you so much. I really believe that and we... We're very inspired to create that, even, you know, not necessarily Trojan horsing this idea of Black excellence, but just giving an opportunity to show it and to see it from another era and not think of it as just a hashtag. You know, mm-hmm. we really are so consumed by social media and how we're the messaging and everything. But, but these concepts have always been there and the furtherance of Black excellence and sort of demanding an understanding about the contributions to the culture. That's just sort of like reset. We're just sort of resetting the narrative right now. As you yeah. know, you know, erasure has been a big theme. And it's, it's just time to reset that and recognize that. And so Ellis Hazlip, you know, is already like a hidden figure <laughs> in a way. And, and it's just really exciting to present him. And, you know, I say this is the greatest show you've never heard of. Um, I say that all the time, but it's really true. And, and the fun part is being able to discover that and discover things that we all have in common and things that we didn't know that will really, really imprint upon us sort of this idea of, of how we can move forward. Just yeah. the very concept that there was a show on the air for five years that actually mm-hmm. traded in poetry and dance and basically the celebration of the spoken word of the arts as a whole, uh, all within the community of the black artists at the time who are among the greatest Americans to have ever lived that most people have not seen and heard enough from. 
by yeah. any stretch. And, and the also, fact that the, that was on the air is really incredibly revolutionary. And it really is. And, and just the fact that it was uncompromising, when we think about how arts, even now, are so fettered, you know, there's always an agenda or, or perhaps it's a commercialization. And you don't always see this sort of uh, unfiltered, uncompromising celebration of Black music and politics and dance and, and, and you know, Black intellect, right? Black literature and all of these things sort of on a national scale. So it's really wild when you, you know, for us, <laughs> the challenge was how to put it all together and the sort of, I think of it as soul, the series is, this, this film is like the gateway drug, you know, <laughs> to the soul series. It's barely scratching the surface of what would, was actually 130 hours of footage, you know, 130 episodes of, you know, extraordinary display of African-American art and politics, et cetera. And, and really shifting the gaze, you know, from this sort of inner city poverty as an expression of black culture to you know, moving away from all of that violence and negativity, which was how black culture was depicted, and really focusing on the vibrancy and the complexity of the black arts movement. Just that shift of focus was really important and, and as you said, really groundbreaking for that era. And especially also noting how he brought uh, so many Black women to the forefront of the conversation, too. I mean, as a Black woman yourself, I assume you have lots of thoughts on <laughs> how this elevated the form of the Black woman and, you know, how this plays out right now with our politics of misogynoir that are constantly coming through. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think when you really understand the full spectrum of Ellis Hayslip's, not just his propensity to go against the grain, but his ability to put forward Black women in positions that they wouldn't normally hold, giving them visibility, for one, this whole idea of the, the power of visibility as an act of not just resistance, but resilience, this idea that, you know, with Black women were not seen and they were, and yet they were really a part of all the movements that were happening. It's, it's almost, again, re, it's like a cultural corrective around black women not being participants in the, in the women's movement, which is still an issue to this day. Yeah. The, the separatist movement of women's you know, empowerment, not always including black women. And I think innately Ellis Hazlip knew that, if he could just give opportunities, like opportunities were so much more empowering than sometimes more than more so than visibility because behind the scenes, people making decisions were women and these were women of color. And so he literally hired the very two first African-American women as associate and assistant producers in television. Uh, one of them was Anna Maria Horsford, who later went on, as we know, to be an incredible actress uh, and producer herself. And the other was Alice Hill, who uh, is now Alice Labrie and formerly Alice Hill Jackson, who was married to Hal Jackson, who was a really important uh, DJ and cultural pioneer. And so just putting these women out front and giving them the opportunity to shine, giving them positions of power and imprinting upon the culture, this sort of 
inherent equality is really groundbreaking because even today we have to kind of fight to, to hold that space and to be given opportunities and to be considered equal or greater than, you know, it's really very interesting that there are so many limitations that are placed upon us that aren't seen. And it's like an uphill battle constantly. So it's really exciting to see Ellis Hazlip, the way he moved and the way he was a little bit of an unsung hero, but a really was really, I think he was in the business of changing minds and, and changing the perception of African-American culture in, in the process. And all the while creating this sort of larger uh, national black audience, which hadn't really had an opportunity to exist before on the heels of civil rights and Jim Crow and, you know, all the things that were happening with the movement and, and so many of our leaders being killed at the time, Malcolm Medgar. And, and I think it's just incredible that quote in there that calls him the most effective and insidious revolutionary yes. of them all. I love that quote. I just wondered if you could comment on what you see as being the most effective parts for him in terms of how he was able to translate all of these wonderful themes onto the screen in a way that both black and white audiences could appreciate. Absolutely. I think part of it is that this notion that that he was kind of merging artists from the margins with sort of post-civil rights, black radical thought. And this, at a time of great turmoil and like social unrest in America, you had this quintessentially New York institution that also becomes a platform for political expression and the fight for social justice. So you've got all these things happening at once. And it's this intersection of black radical thought, pushing back art as art as activism and pushing back on in this sort of resistance mode. All of that was really, really key. And this idea that you could have a quiet revolutionary leading that and determine to elevate the perception, as I said, of African-American culture by showcasing this extraordinary array of people of color, that in itself is an act of, of resistance and rebellion. It really speaks to, it's important to recognize that in order to move forward. Like the, the people who were laying that groundwork and, and creating the possibility of creating community and pulling together activists and leaders and politicians at a time, you know, when television neither accurately reflected nor positively portrayed a full spectrum of black society. He was really curating the culture and, and the fluidity of, of black thought and identity. And that in itself was groundbreaking 50 years ago. And it, I still think it would be groundbreaking today. That quote from Questlove where he's talking about what if we had had 20 more years of this program, what would life have looked like for us? So fascinating. You know, I actually interviewed Questlove for documentary magazine this summer issue. It should be out now. We went down the rabbit hole because there's so many similarities with Summer of Soul, of course, and Mr. Soul. And just this notion of there being the need to sort of combat this idea of erasure and and creating visibility where sort of visibility politics around the art that hasn't been seen um, and, and defiance around that. And, and we really talked a lot about the importance of that and the importance of curating black joy and bringing forward these sort of unseen gems and what that means for black culture. He and I both agreed that had we had these opportunities, had there been 
an archive that culture could could recognize it, that wasn't just a discovery, we would all feel so much more empowered today. If we had known that these things had already existed and, and we had heroes that we could connect to, you know, imagine. And, and he talked about it himself, being like a geeky kid growing up with really woke parents in, in Philadelphia, but not having enough of his own heroes and seeing them and, and how it would have empowered him differently. Of course, he ended up being Questlove, so he's doing great. <laughs> <laughs> but I also think about the life of everyone in America is deeply yeah. impoverished for the loss of these heroes that we should have seen at the forefront in everything. The fact that it took the pandemic for so many people to become aware of so many wonderful Black writers and singers and Mm -hmm. So much of the Black thought of this country has been buried under layers of rubble. It's such a, a painful process to realize exactly how much excavation needs to be done. I just want to commend you so much for the work that you've been putting into this, because I think, I think it, it, it's incredible. And trying to figure out what's there to fill the vacuum now that Mr. Soul is finding an audience on HBO Max, which is Yay. incredible. <laughs> and trying to find other ways to move this dialogue forward. It's really important. And getting back to Questlove, you know, we both have this sort of shared passion for capturing and illuminating sort of the legacy of our lesser known, but historically significant, um, you know, cultural sort of watershed moments. And I know he's going on to do some really great work, some upcoming documentaries he's planning on really illuminating these hidden figures as well. But also recognizing that it's this, it's this constant battle about, you know, ascribing value. You know, who gets to ascribe value to Black culture and why has it taken so long to do so? And as you said, you know, it's kind of painful now recognizing that there have been so many sort of watershed, watershed moments and treasure troves of archival that we've been missing out on. I say it's never too late, or maybe it's better to say better late than never, <laughs> Because it is a little late, but at the same time, think, I think that things are cyclical and the fact that we're looking back to 50 years ago for Summer Soul in 69 and of course Soul, from, which was before that, 68 through 73, ironically, we're experiencing so many parallels right now, 50 years later. So the question becomes, what's going to happen 50 years from now? And can we effectively make change that will be impactful for the future, just as you know, Alice Hazlip and, and other sort of cultural pioneers were thinking this idea of, you know, Black futurism and, and mm -hmm. making things better for the future. What do we have to do? How can we, what are the Black seeds that we lay out right now that will bring fruit in the future? And that consciousness is what's expanding, I think. And sort of this idea of legacy keeping um, and recognizing kind of in advance what's important. But again, we have to elevate the conversations around the curation and, and around the realization of uh, the importance of ascribing value and not in relation to, but just because, because it exists. Yeah. Those are the larger issues that I think we have to answer and what yeah. has definitely been holding us back, whether consciously or not. Yeah. Who do you see as being the, the cultural curators other than looking at what you're doing as a documentarian to curate what's what's going on within the culture. But who, who else do you see as being 
forward moving cultural curators that are maybe picking up Ellis's torch? Oh, yeah. Well, there's certainly so many folks who are really changing the game in terms of delivering the content. I think that that's part of the issue is having ownership in, in or agency around the platforms that are being used. You know, there's more autonomy in podcasting, certainly, uh, in crafting social media, even though it seems fleeting, it's really important. And uh, creating platforms that are not, you know, beholden to commercial interests or, or finding partners, whether it's streaming partners or, um, you know, other media that will allow for more autonomy and, and less tethering to networks, etc. So in that end, I think there's a lot of artists who are uh, shaping the culture in that way. And I mean, to name a few, obviously Questlove, because he's really at the front of the packs right now. Um, and he has, he's a polymath and has his hands in everything. Uh, but also people like uh, Lena Waite, who is really curating some extraordinary work and really understands the, po- the, the politics of visibility. Um, and in her particular case, as a queer person of color, the importance around uh, building narratives that have not been seen. Uh, but also people like, uh, let's see, I don't want to leave anyone out. No, I, it's kind of an unfair question. I'm sorry. No, I just was totally, curious. It's totally fair. You... It's totally fair. I, and it's in, it's in the writing too. It's, gosh, it's uh, Amanda Seals and her, all of her projects. Um, you know, it's the autonomy of the visual artists who are writing and curating and, and, and editing. And yeah, there's a lot happening right now, but it's definitely the shift around the autonomy and, and and the declaration of that autonomy that is really really very exciting, and the and the modalities of storytelling are different too, right? Because the modalities are going to be around you know really changing the perception of who's telling the story and the lens, the diversity of the eyes through which those stories are told. That's what's changing, and and that creates a more expansiveness around the content that we're seeing. And it's funny because at the beginning of this interview, you started to mention critical race theory as well as this thing that, for whatever set of reasons, conservative America has picked up on as being so deeply controversial, and yet it is at the heart of everything we are as a country. Mm -hmm. So the fact that that would be considered controversial says a lot of things right there. And so it's fascinating to watch documentaries like yours that single out the Black experience and curate that as one particular lens for looking at this country. And it's just such a wonderful thing that you have not only singled out both this 130 hours of programming that did the work that now the rest of America needs to catch up to. Yeah. And and in terms of the critical race theory, what's exciting about it, too, is it's based in scholarship. And, and, you know, like science, it's kind of hard to argue. <laughs> of course, people will, and people have, especially now with this bizarre moment we're in, anti-science movement we're in, but that's another rabbit hole we won't go down. You know, this sort of idea of this body of legal scholarship and, and academic movement, that's important because when you have that academic spine behind a movement based on civil rights scholars and activists, you know, who are seeking to critically change and, and, and really examine and really interrogate, you know, this sort of 
intersection of race and U.S. law and U.S. history, it's a different approach. And it's, it's simply, be, it's not that it hasn't happened and it shouldn't be special. I just think that the timing is right. You know, now is the time to examine, especially after what happened last year. We just have to take ownership and, and be, um, you know, it's all about accountability for the history of the country. And that is this sort of racial reckoning moment that we're all in. And yes, it's uncomfortable, but I think it will really reset the narrative for the next 50 years. Um, and of course, there's going to be resistance to that because not everybody wants to shake that tree. But what's, what's important, again, Ellis Hazard wasn't an academic, but he was, he got his PhD in the streets. He understood the soul of the nation. And in fact, we talk about that in the show, how it started out, sort of the provenance of the show was around an inscrutable black academic, you know, someone like Alvin Poussaint, Dr. Alvin Poussaint, who ends up being the go-to guy for the Cosby show on black culture. But at the time, they needed somebody who was, um, you know, inscrutable to sort of represent the culture on PBS. And as time went by, Ellis realized that that really wasn't tapping into the, the vibe and the feeling on the street. And being able to evolve from having a justifiable black academic leading the culture to a person who was in the culture really speaks volumes to or about this intersection of pop and politics that Ellis Hazard was able, able to inhabit and bring that together for everybody and, and a national audience. And this idea that we, and hopefully one day we will move away from, you know, the academic spine of critical race theory, but unfortunately it's something that we have to acknowledge now. It's the only way it will gain the recognition that it needs, almost yeah. needs to be justified and dignified in order to have merit for so many, because it, it's such a, it's such a wiggly area with people, <laughs> uh, you know, that we don't really, we have a very blemished past in America. And I think the sooner we recognize that, the sooner we'll be able to move forward. But that's a, that's a lofty goal considering how, how the country was started and the whole 1619 argument. But, you know, it's projects like this that slowly chip away. I, you know, as I said, I feel like it's a, it resets the cultural narrative and it, but it's also really sweet and, and inspiring and entertaining. And that's what we wanted the film to be too. We wanted the film to be a love letter to black culture and, and whatever academic or, you know, racial undertones and everything that you take away from that, the better. But what's universal about it is this sense of pride and joy and music and soul. And, and there's so much richness there to the black experience that you are able to explore but at the same time you're snapping your fingers and popping <laughs> popping yeah. to the beat so exactly. a little bit of everything and i think that's important too because really the the joy in that is so inherent i really felt that we all felt like now is a moment to really celebrate that joy because we have all been so you know, there's been just so much cultural ptsd and so much negativity and resulting from you know, really traumatic experiences last year alone, my goodness, but, but it's okay, even in that reality to recognize that there's joy, and that we have to, that's the only, it's, it's a real survival tactic (laughs) at the same time, but it's also something that everyone can, can find joy in. Yeah. I love that phrase, though, that you used of cultural PTSD, 
that I think is very, very relevant right now, given what everyone has been going through, both in terms of the racial reckonings of the last two years, as well as everything we're experiencing as a result of the pandemic, where black and brown lives are lost at infinitely higher rates. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's so tragic that there's so much that's going on, but at the same time, there are so many wonderful healing messages being sent out there. Um, yeah, absolutely. And and that is important to recognize that we are not, the sum of, of our people is not merely tragedy and trauma. Mm-hmm. We have reacted to that, and that has been the behind all of the movements of social change, certainly. But that's not the sum total of who we are. And, and that's really, really important to recognize and, and a point that we wanted to drive home. Yeah. Yes, see the full landscape of what was happening, understand how soul interrupted that landscape, but also this undeniable joy and extraordinary cultural shift. It's important to recognize that too, because everyone participates in that. And so we're, we are all a part of that journey, in other words. And what are you hoping that people will take from this documentary and that people will live of this documentary? Well, I'm hoping that they'll see it again several times. (laughs) (laughs) I I do know that there, I've been told many, many times from strangers and friends alike that A, they've either had to stop the film to say, I can't believe what I just saw, what is happening? (laughs) Or B, that they just really want to see it again. And so, you know, there are so many, well, one of our goals is to, we we do have educational uh, distribution uh, for the film. And that's really important too, because, you know, there's such an educational element to the film for those. But we also feel that there's so many things you can, that it could inspire you to do, whether to connect with your local live theater, you know, dance studio, art museum, music venues, you know, there are ways to, we hope that the film host will inspire you to host other events or work with students to see how art and activism can connect. There are just many, many ways to connect with the content of the film, whether it's with a partner activists or your local public library or, you know, hosting an online festival. I just think that the, that engaging with the film has, has really helped people to understand these critical questions and the importance of curating like in-depth personal stories and elevating our culture at the same time. I just really hope that it will be inspiring to people and will encourage a deeper look into our critical past, but also really understanding how far we've come and how far we have yet to go to achieve fairness and equity, or I hate to say DEI, but that's what everyone's talking about right now, diversity, equity, (laughs) inclusion, that's the buzzword right now. But, you know, just in terms of what it can do as a resource, I think it's wildly entertaining and really important to, to know that we're all standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, and that in order to move forward, We have to recognize our past like the old proverb, you know? So, yeah. Thank you so much for describing this beautiful artistic landscape that was created by the work of soul for so many years. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening. 
and thank you for taking a moment right now to reflect with me on the history of the land you are listening on now. Whether you are stuck in traffic or sitting in your office chair, take the time to look up whose traditional lands you are on now and what treaties govern those territories. I record this podcast on the site of land stolen from the Manahoac people. I am grateful to work on this land, and I acknowledge that we need to protect and honor the history of the indigenous people from other tribal nations that have made innumerable contributions around the world. I share this in the hope that my listeners may join me in honoring our past, present, and future. Without this land, this earth, and each other, we are nothing. Before I go, please take 30 seconds now to leave us a five-star review by clicking on support the show in the show notes. We don't want your money. We want your words. A simple RTO rocks my socks expands our reach and helps us keep bringing you great content. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter where we are at Omnibus Ride. You can also visit our website, omnibusride.com, where you can go to dive deeper into our content and learn more about the show. A special thank you to our amazing editor, William Das. We truly couldn't do what we do without him or Danielle. Be well, be safe, and keep in touch. Mm-hmm.